Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Great Hearts Academies, a nonprofit network of K-12 public charter schools offering a rigorous classical liberal arts education grounded in the best of the Western tradition. Great Hearts operates 34 academies in Arizona and Texas, serving over 21,000 students with plans for further growth underway. Great Hearts is in search of exceptional school leaders who embrace a classical and liberal philosophy of education and who possess a well-grounded vision for the moral and intellectual formation of the human person. Learn how you can join a community of classical leaders by visiting greatheartsamerica.org careers. That's greatheartsamerica.org careers. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 50, Who Are You Trying to Convince? Today's proverb comes from British essayist and philosopher William Hazlitt. I'll read it twice. Violent antipathies are always suspicious and betray a secret affinity. Once more, violent antipathies are always suspicious and betray a secret affinity. For the 50th episode of the show, which is a small milestone, I wanted to use a proverb from my favorite philosopher to have discovered since beginning the show. And prior to the first episode of Proverbial, I had never heard of William Hazlitt. But in looking through anthologies of proverbs over the last year or so, I've encountered many of Hazlitt's Proverbs, and I purchased a book of his essays, and I've become rather entranced by him. And so I wanted to commit the 50th episode to one of his sayings. This proverb reminds me an awful lot of one of my favorite lines of dialogue from any movie, 
maybe. Yeah, at least my favorite line of dialogue from any film over the last 20 years. Maybe one of my favorite lines of dialogue of all time. And it's from Tom Alfredson's version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the John le Carre novel. And if you've read my work over the last several years, you've probably heard me reference this saying before, this line of dialogue before. And the claim from the movie is, the fanatic is always concealing a secret doubt. Now, if you haven't seen the film, or if you haven't read John le Carre's novel, the quote could use a little contextualization. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is about one spy, an ex-spy, George Smiley, who attempts to sniff out a mole in the higher reaches of British intelligence. And towards the end of the film, he's explaining how it is that the Russians looked for people in British intelligence to turn. If you've got hundreds of You've got thousands of potential traitors. And you've only got so much time on your hands. How do you test for weakness? Like, if you're looking at the profiles, like, say you're the Russians and you're looking for someone to turn, and you've got this big stack of files on all the British agents that could be of use to you. And you've got reports on their families and their pastimes, weekends, hobbies, and so forth. What exactly are you looking for in a man that makes him an attractive option in terms of turning someone? What kind of person do you not stand a chance at turning? And what kind of person could be turned easy? And at the end of the film, George Smiley has discovered the double agent. And he explains that the fanatic is always concealing a secret doubt. That's the person that you want to push on, to try to get them to turn. I find this really fascinating. The fanatic is always concealing a secret doubt. Everyone has doubts. It's just that the fanatic makes his secret. Or perhaps it's that concealing a secret doubt is what makes a man into a fanatic. Well, this film came out around 10 years ago. And it was around the time that I saw this film that I first noted fanaticism in others. I don't think that I had noted it as such before. Shortly after I saw this movie for the first time, I was living in Florida. One afternoon, I took a walk with my two-year-old daughter. And when we left the house, the sky was dark. It was the afternoon, and it looked like it was going to rain. But I took my chances. I said, my daughter really needs a walk. I need to get out of the house. Let's see if we can make it around the neighborhood before the rain begins. 
and we would take this little loop around the neighborhood that was about a quarter of a mile long. And at the very farthest from our front door that we would get, we were, you know, maybe a thousand feet. Well, we go for this walk, and we're about a thousand feet away from the front door of our apartment, and the heavens open. And it's a torrential downpour. And like an idiot, I had worn flip-flops on this walk. And I could not walk in, in the rain. My feet were slipping. And my child was freaking out. So I did something that I've only done two or three times in my whole life. I knocked on a stranger's door and asked for refuge from a storm. And I I chose the nearest, nicest-looking house, and I knocked on the door, and this fellow in his 50s came to the door, and I explained, I live near here. My daughter and I are caught in the storm. Can we wait the storm out in your house? And he said, yes. So we came in. When we came into his house, we were soaking wet. And so he led us into his kitchen, which was, well, not his kitchen, into his dining room, which was adjoining to his kitchen. And it was tile floor. It wasn't carpeted. So my daughter and I sit down at his dinner table, which is over this tiled floor. And we're, we're dripping wet, so I don't want to go into his living room, which is carpeted, and sit on his sit on his sofa, but he and his wife, who was also a home, go and kind of sit maybe 15 feet away, 20 feet away. It felt like a long distance, so I'm a stranger already in his home, and he's sitting about 20 feet away, and it was a a somewhat awkward arrangement, just the physical arrangement of not knowing who this person was and being far away from him probably made us both a bit more suspicious of each other than we ought to have been. If we'd been closer, there might have been some more friendly, more intimate sort of interaction that would have followed. But what happened was he asked me my name, and I gave some brief account of myself. I'm Joshua Gibbs. I'm a literature teacher. This is my daughter. We live near here. (laughs) Like I I don't remember saying anything terribly interesting to him kind of banal biographical information. And in response to my claim of being Joshua Gibbs and being a literature teacher, the first thing I remember this fellow saying, after I finished all of this, you know, he listens to me attentively. The first thing that he says when I'm done saying all this, and, you know, before going any further. This was a nice house. This was a big two-story home in a nice little neighborhood, two cars in the driveway, well-decorated inside, a kind of um, comfortable, tasteful sort of home. And I, I tell him all of this, Josh Gibbs, literature teacher, and I think the first question out of his mouth after I said all of this was something like, 
When you die, are you certain that you will go to heaven? It's an interesting opening line, for sure, when dealing with a stranger. The question was not about God. It was not about Christianity. When you die, are you certain that you will go to heaven? Now, I respond to this by saying, my hope is Jesus Christ. I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, which I regard as the kind of classical answer, if not classical at least, but the orthodox answer to this question, the answer that my church would have me give. And he says to this, but are you certain? Not enough to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Are you certain? And he says, I am certain of where I will go when I die. My wife is certain where we will go when we die. We will go to heaven to be with God. You can be certain too. And he wanted me to not only say that I was certain that I would go to heaven, he wanted me to say that I was certain he would too. And he kept prodding me with this. And he had, you know, four or five passages of scripture that he kept bringing up that concerned knowledge. And I was entirely taken back by this. I'm not in my own home. But I was also just kind of intrigued by someone who was so desperate to prove their own certainty. And the question that I didn't ask him, but the question that I wanted to ask is, who are you trying to convince? Like, Why would you try to convince a complete stranger of your own certainty of a position? Not really trying to convince a stranger of a position, but trying to convince a stranger of your own certainty of a position. Now, this fellow was a nice guy. I mean, he let a perfect stranger into his home. But when I left his house, I couldn't help thinking of this quote. The fanatic is always concealing a secret doubt. Why was he trying so hard to convince me of his own certainty? It's a weird thing to try to convince somebody of. Not long after this, I had another encounter with a total stranger who wanted to prove the same thing to me. I was in a grocery store. It was less than two weeks later. I was in a grocery store pushing the same little daughter around in the produce section. This guy comes up to me, asks me not the same question, but a pretty similar kind of question. If you die tonight, where will you go? And I said, the morgue. Actually, I didn't. I just always want to say that whenever somebody asks. If you die tonight, where will you go? I think I said, it's my hope that I go to heaven to be with Jesus Christ. This was not good enough. Hope, not good enough. Faith, not good enough. You must know with certainty. And so I was in the grocery store, and this fellow, who I have never seen before in my life, wants to get into a conversation about certainty. It was not a conversation about God. It was a conversation about certainty. 
And it's very strange to get into a conversation with somebody about certainty when that person has never heard the word epistemology before. Like, if a stranger knows what epistemology is, and for some reason a stranger wants to debate epistemology with you, that's a different story. But to want to debate how we know what we know with a stranger, not the goodness of God, not the love of God, but certainty. And this guy wanted me to say, I was certain that both of us were going to heaven. And I kept insisting. I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my faith and my hope. No, not good enough. You must know for certain. And so I pulled the classical angle and started kind of explaining how epistemology works to this fellow who I think wanted to get into some kind of gospel presentation to me. I start explaining how epistemology works. And he sits, well, he stands there, frustrated, for about 30 seconds. And I finished with some kind of question to him about certainty of knowledge. And he looked me in the eye and he said, you go to hell. And he walked away. The fanatic is always concealing a secret doubt. Now, if we go back, go back to the spy angle, the spy movie, hypothetical scenario, how do you pick somebody to try to turn? What is it in a man's file that lets you know he's highly likely to betray his country for some money? What do you, what do you go off of? Now, if you've read any of other uh, Lucares of the novels or seen other films based on his work, you know that alcoholics are easy targets to turn. But that's not the primary thing, at least not in Tom Alfredson's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's fanaticism. That's what you want to go for, which seems counterintuitive, right? You would think that the easiest person to turn would be somebody who had expressed some doubts before, but that's not it, not according to Lakari. Why? Well, I think the fanatic doesn't believe that he's being paid enough. The fanatic is always willing to go farther than others. He's always willing to suffer more than others. And the fanatic is vexed by the fact that he is judged by those who he thinks lack his level of commitment. The fanatic doubts that any purely earthly thing can be worth his love. And so he's forced to pretend that the movement is heavenly. But he doubts this because it's not true. He knows really that the movement is made up of people, some of whom have less commitment than he does, a few people who have more commitment than he does. He knows that everyone plays some kind of part, even a small part. He knows that other people have doubts. But only the fanatic feels as though he must conceal those doubts. Everyone else voices their doubts openly and casually. The common man admits that his corporation, his business, his college, his school, his 
following on Twitter is all made up of people whose motivations for following him or for following the movement or being part of the movement, their motivations are all very diverse. But the fanatic believes that doubt is what sinks the college, the business, the corporation. He has this divine view of the movement. And he's like a, a third or fourth century pagan Roman who believes that the corruption at the edges of the empire are a result of an angry god. You go back to fourth or third century Rome, fourth century Rome. And the pagans are persecuting Christians because the Romans can't keep an emperor on the throne for more than a couple weeks, because the treasury is empty, because their borders are soft. And they say the problem is, is that Jupiter is angry at us. And he's angry at us because the Christians refuse to offer sacrifices, because the Christians have doubts. And the doubts of Christians in Jupiter, granted this is a specific kind of doubt, of course, but the doubts of Christians in Jupiter are what are making Jupiter angry. And so they create this kind of fanaticism. The Romans don't express their doubts. They believe the expression of doubt angers their God. And the fanatic believes that anyone who expresses doubt in the movement will sink the movement. There's nobody who's more apt to lose their faith in a movement than someone who talks about it and blogs about it and lectures about it all the time. That's one of the things that I like about classical education. I think it's problematic that classical education has become a movement. But as a movement, one of the things that I like about classical education is that it's fairly open to self-critique. You don't have to pretend like it's really perfect. And most of the people who are involved in classical education, at least the ones that I respect, have fairly broad interests. They don't do nothing but talk about classical education. They have some doubts. They express those doubts, they express their gratitude, and they get on with their lives. And that's what Hazlitt's quote assumes. Violent antipathies are always suspicious and betray a secret affinity. The common person has antipathies, but they're not violent. They don't create a kind of frenzy. You oppose things, you oppose them violently only if they violently oppose you, and you have to defend yourself. Antipathies are reasonable when they're fairly cool. And hatred has a tendency to blind. And I think that violent antipathies and hatred kind of go together. Now, as I've argued before, hatred is one of those things that can be justified or not, depending on how you use the term. But the violent antipathies that Hazlitt's talking about, I think he's talking about hatred as a sin, hatred as the desire for wrath. Wrath masquerades as 
care for justice, but really only wants to inflict pain on the hated person. It's hard to hate, and so most people don't have a lot of brazen hatreds bound up in their hearts. You may hate one or two people, but it's hard work to hate, and it's corrosive and destructive. So you have to control the number of things that you hate. Really, Christians are commanded to love their enemies, love their neighbors, love themselves. No one escapes Christ's all-encompassing ethic of love. Hatred is hard to hide. Uh, but because hatred is blinding, we tend to think that the people, we tend to think that we've disguised our hatred better than we have. Like if you call someone out and say you hate that person, or you have hate for those people, they almost never concede it. They almost always say, no, it's just a strong dislike. It's hard to get somebody to admit that they hate. And I believe it's hard to get someone to admit that they hate because hatred has this tendency towards violence. And there's something unsavory about admitting that you would like to physically harm other people. It's hard to know what to, what to say to someone after they admit that. I would like to hurt this person physically. <laughs> what, you, what is anybody going to say to that? Good, let me help you. The secret affinity we feel towards people for whom we also have a violent antipathy may not always be doubt in the movement, so to speak. It can simply be self-doubt. In which case, we know that our enemies have a point. We know that our enemies have a point because we've seen the back rooms of our own movement. As soon as you're a part of a movement, you get to see all the dirty laundry. You get to see all the stuff that the movement doesn't put front and center in their PR campaigns. Every store has a sign on a door in the back that says employees only. And as soon as you've been behind that door, you know that your competitors know something about you. <laughs> you know that your competitors know that you're hiding a few things that you're keeping a few things secret, that you've at least swept the dirt under the rug. To be a part, to take identity or become a member of any sort of institution is to be initiated into the secrets of that institution or the private information. Secret sounds a little too suspicious. As soon as you're in, you learn where all the vulnerabilities are. You learn where all the inconsistencies are. You learn where all the places are where no one can see you. All the little nooks and crannies. 
And you're angry that those nooks and crannies are not shored up. And you're angry that there's a back room. And you're angry that there's information about the movement that you have to keep secret. And in keeping it a secret, you're bearing this burden. And when other people share their doubts, they're not doing their part. They're not doing their part in shouldering the weight. And so you become frustrated. And your own fervor has to make up for theirs. So this cuts both ways, though, I think. I think that there is this sunny side, too. The fanatic is always concealing a secret doubt. And the sunny side is this. I'll state this axiomatically. Bad students often turn into good teachers. And I make that claim as somebody who's in an education, and I'd be willing to bet that other industries and other lines of work have similar sounding proverbs or axioms or maxims about where the great plumber comes from, where the great general comes from. I was indifferent to school. Or I affected a kind of indifference back in the 90s when I went to high school. I needed 10 years to graduate from college. I expressed intense dislike of college. 10 years to graduate with a bachelor's degree. Dropped out three times. Made fun of school, mocked school openly when I was in high school. C student across the board. And yet there was something in me, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of cherishing the role of slacker, the role of one who got away with everything. I did harbor a secret doubt that all of my posturing against school was really worth anything. And I was terrified that I would become an adult and that I wouldn't make it. And that fear ultimately was converted into a kind of verve to make school as great as possible for other people. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.